Good morning, everyone. As you can see, if you've picked up your notes there, there's a lot of scripture we're going to cover today. It looks like most of Galatians by the time we're done. Uh, we'll be moving uh, pretty quickly um, through a lot of passages today. I want to, our focus is going to be on Galatians 6, 1 and 2, and this is something I've been reminded of lately, just in a lot of conversations with people outside the church and uh, that I've been in other churches that I've been trying to help, actually, with some problems they've been going through. And, and then also, it just seems to me there are a lot of burdens in our church right now that this principle might apply to. So um, maybe it's just because I needed the reminder that you're stuck hearing about it today. But... Uh, But it is the word of the Lord, so it's a good thing to be stuck with, right? I'm going to begin reading in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, and then then finish with uh, reading through our text for today, Um, probably all all the way through verse 3 of chapter 6. And it's important that we read this much of the passage because a great deal of what I'm going to say depends on having this context in our mind. We can't really understand what Paul is talking about without this larger context in mind, which is why we're going to spend so much time in parts of Galatians leading up to chapter 6 this morning in, in the body of the message, particularly in trying to understand what he means when he speaks about you who are spiritual. Um, that needs some defining if we're going to understand the command given to those who are spiritual. Uh, who are they? Uh, so I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 of, of chapter 5 and then uh, through about verse 3 of chapter 6. <clears throat> For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And Paul means the their indwelling sin that remains in us that we still battle. That's basically what it means by the flesh. Um, Don't use the freedom that you have in Christ now as really a pretense to go on sinning in some way or another. So for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, verse 16, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. He's describing a battle, a spiritual battle that we're all in and that we're fighting every day. And he says, these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand... Just as I also told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then we have our passage for this morning. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This passage in mind here, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your word. I thank you uh, for the many lessons that we have in your word. I thank you that uh, in your word we have a rock, an anchor for our souls. We have certain truth in a world that is filled with uh, the notion of relativism and and all kinds of syncretism where people combine all kinds of different views. We, we see the purity of the truth in your word. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would help us to understand what it is that you're saying to us in your word and as a result become more like Christ. Help to mature us, conforming us more and more into his image as a result, Lord, of our time together in your word this morning. Make us good hearers of your word, I pray. Fill us with your spirit to that end. We ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I've already noted that this term spiritual is important. When Paul talks about you who are spiritual, these days it's it's not uncommon to hear people use that term, is it? Uh, To say, I am a spiritual person, you know, People like Madonna have said that, right? I'm a spiritual person. Uh, You not infrequently hear it from celebrities and actors and pop singers and so forth. And it's becoming an increasingly popular sentiment. People will say things like, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Which is kind of nonsensical if they understand what either of those two words mean. Uh, But they don't understand what either of those two words mean generally when they make statements like that. Um, I don't know precisely what they mean. I think most of the people who use the term mean something like, I believe there's something more than just this material world. They might, they might believe in ghosts or something, you know. Uh, it can mean all kinds of things to them. But the Apostle Paul, when he spoke of certain people as being spiritual, which to him would mean most every believer, (laughs) I think. He had a a very definite understanding of the term in mind, and and he he expected his fellow Christians to understand what he meant by the term, especially given the context in which he used it. It should be very clear what he means by the term. And it's it's a deep term, it's a rich term, and it's packed with meaning. And we're going to try to understand what that meaning is so that we can better understand what he means with his command to those who are spiritual um, to restore their brothers or sisters in the Lord. 
Uh, we'll begin to see what he means by the term as we examine the preceding context of our passage for this morning, some of which we've already read, in which Paul has described the Christian life, as we've seen, as a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Remember what we just read in chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, where Paul said, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts, and there it means continually, against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So for Paul, a spiritual person isn't a person who has total victory all the time and never has a spiritual battle to fight, right? A spiritual person is a person that recognizes that he or she is in a spiritual battle and is fighting it. That's a spiritual person. I doubt many of the pop singers who use the word spiritual have any notion of that in their heads, right? And so we're not surprised then that Paul goes on to stress how crucial it is that we follow the Spirit's leading if we are going to have victory in this conflict. In Galatians 5.25, when he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. For people who claim to have spiritual life given to them by the Holy Spirit, to then not walk in the Spirit but walk in the flesh instead, Paul says there's an incongruity there. If indeed you have been given life through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is that same power of the Spirit we should see in your life as you live your life. And in the context, that means not the lusts of the flesh, right, and the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit. And that you're in a battle in which you're gaining more and more growth in that fruit of the Spirit, and you're learning more and more to overcome these works of the flesh. That's the idea and the context, right, that Paul has in mind. Um, Now, Paul, as we've already seen in verse 16, has commanded us to walk in the Spirit. And then he also spoke of our being led by the Spirit, in which the active role of the Spirit himself was emphasized in verse 18 of chapter 5. And in those statements, as well as this one that we just looked at in chapter 5, verse 25, Paul used the present tense to, to connote a a continual or habitual walking or being led, that this is characteristic of the Christian life, to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. Those are, those are two ways of saying the same thing, right? But it also indicates that being led then by the Spirit and us walking in the Spirit is something that you don't just do it once. You don't, it's a daily, day in and day out kind of thing. As I said, it characterizes the whole life of the believer. But in verse 25, Paul used a different word for walk than he did earlier in verse 16 of chapter 5. There he used the typical Greek word for walking, a peripeteo for our Greek scholars. But here in 525, he used a very specialized Greek word, stoicheo is the word, which literally means to be drawn up or advance in a line or to belong in ranks. It was a word used of soldiers marching or advancing in a line. It's primarily a military term, uh, and it can be be used figuratively in other ways. And, of course, it's being used figuratively here with a sense of walking in the steps of the Spirit as he leads. When I was uh, in the Navy, and I know it's hard to believe that people in the Navy would have to learn how to march, right? But, But we did. It's one of the ways they instill discipline. And I was a squad leader, and I was at the front of the line of my squad, and my squad had to walk, march behind me, in step with me. 
We had to all be walking in step, right? And so the idea here is that the spirit is at the head of our line and we're walking in step behind him, figuratively speaking. Uh, I think then the, the ESV study Bible's on the right track when it says uh, that this verb means to walk in line behind a leader. Uh, J.I. Packer is also very close to the mark when he takes it to mean that we must keep in step with the Spirit. In fact, he wrote a book by that title about this idea. G. Walter Hansen has even been so bold as to write this. Keep in step is a military command to make a straight line or to march in ordered rows. The Spirit sets the line and pace for us to follow. Keeping in step with the Spirit takes active concentration and discipline of the whole person. We constantly see many alternative paths to follow. We reject them to follow the Spirit. We constantly hear other drummers who want to quicken or slow down our pace. We tune them out to listen to the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty good application. There's lots of conflicting things we're hearing all around us, but we tune those things out. We follow the Word of God. Right? That's been given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's how we keep in step with the Spirit. Right? And so Paul's taught us in this passage that we're in a battle with the flesh, in which the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit against the flesh, because they're opposed to one another. And in this battle, we must learn to be led by the Spirit and to keep in step with his every command. And this walking in the Spirit is similar to the way a soldier follows his commander and heeds his commands. We will not win the battle, right, if we do not follow the Spirit. And so we could also say that just as soldiers at war all have a pack to carry, they each have their own burden to carry, we as Christians do as well. And just as when one soldier is exhausted or wounded, the others help to carry the load, even so, we must all recognize the responsibility to bear one another's burdens. We see this necessity in the central command of today's passage found in Galatians 6, verse 2, where Paul says, bear one another's burdens. But how should this be done? In what way are we to bear one another's burdens? Well, we're going to see that we do this by restoring others and also by loving others. Those are the two principal ideas here in the text. Um. Paul begins by giving a specific application, restoring others, and then goes on to focus on the general principle behind it, loving others. And so we're going to follow the same order in our examination of the text. We're going to begin by seeing that we must bear one another's burdens by restoring others, and then that we must bear one another's burdens by loving others. But already we have a pretty good idea of the environment in which this is taking place and what it means to be spiritual. Right, We're going to get into that in more depth as we move on. First of all, we must bear one another's burdens by restoring one another. This is what Paul says in verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, when Paul gives the command to restore one another, that Greek word translated restore, it's a fairly common word, actually. It basically means to put in order, to restore something to a former condition, to mend or to repair something. In fact, it was used in the Gospels to describe the disciples' mending of their fishing nets. 
But it, it also had a technical meaning as a medical term used to, des- to, to describe setting a bone or a joint back in place. Right? Somebody had a dislocated shoulder and you popped it back in place. That's the word you would use for restoring that shoulder, right? Or a broken leg and you set it. This would be the word you might use. Uh, so we can understand how it could have come to have a figurative meaning to describe restoring a sinning brother. And that's the way Paul uses it here in a figurative sense. The late James Montgomery Boyce applied the term this way when he wrote, the verb is a medical term used in secular Greek for setting a fractured bone. What is wrong in the life of the fallen Christian is to be set straight. It is not to be neglected or exposed openly. I think John Stott also offers some helpful observations about the implications of this command when he writes this. Notice how positive Paul's instruction is. If we detect somebody doing something wrong, we are not to stand by doing nothing on the pretext that it is none of our business and we have no wish to be involved, nor are we to despise and condemn him in our hearts. And if he suffers for his misdemeanor, uh, say, serves him right or let him stew in his own juice, nor are we to report him to the minister or gospel about him to our friends in the congregation. No, we are to restore him and to set him back on the right path. As David Guzik puts it, the overtaken ones need to be restored. They're not to be ignored. They're not to be excused. They're not to be destroyed. The goal is always restoration. And restoration is indeed the focus that Paul wants us to have, clearly in this passage. But he not only commands us to restore one another, he also provides crucial information that we need in order to fulfill this responsibility. He says something about who should be restored. You should have all this in your notes. This is a, kind of an involved outline. Uh, who should do the restoring and how the restoration should be done. So we're going to briefly consider each one of these uh, subpoints here. First of all, Paul tells us who should be restored in the first part of verse 1 when he says that one overtaken in any trespass should be restored. And he says any trespass that they're overtaken by. So we need to understand that a little bit. The Greek verb translated overtaken here usually means to overtake by surprise or to overpower before someone can escape. The use of this verb probably indicates that the person isn't deliberately or remorselessly sinning. But, but even if the person is deliberately sinning, the idea is that the person's caught or trapped in the sin. That the sin has captured them in some way, right? I don't think then that Paul intends for, for us to be constantly confronting every possible sin we can find in a brother, right? If that were the case we would not have any time for anything else, right? And none of us would want to be around each other either because it would be, it feel like a very graceless place to be. We have to remember that also that love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, Paul, Paul isn't dealing with every sin we could possibly see in another person, right? I don't think that's what he has in mind. Uh, he says, uh, rather, that we should confront any trespass with by which someone has been overtaken. I think this certainly means that no nagging or persistent sin should be let go without seeking to correct 
and restore the person caught in it. You know, we, we're all around people that we see, oh, well, that wasn't the right thing to say, or, you know, boy, he seemed to be angry when he shouldn't have been, or, boy, she really, she probably shouldn't have, you know, done that. Uh, I saw her speeding, you know, or something like, and we're going to go around pointing this all out. You need to be restored. No, uh, but, but if, if we see a Christian brother, just use speeding as an example, or sister, constantly getting speeding tickets and traffic violations, we need to pull them aside and say, you know what, this is a bad testimony. At some point, you've got to learn to follow the law because Christians are supposed to do that. And you're, look, you're making us all look bad here. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing that, right? Um, even something that most of us regard as a petty thing that we would not even think twice about, well, it can become a problem if somebody's just constantly having an issue. And then especially if they're then coming and saying, I'm racking up all these fines and now I've lost my license. I need all you to give me a ride. Well, maybe it's time to confront that person. You need to learn to be responsible. You need to learn to not uh, constantly violate the law. You're in this predicament because of your sin, right? There's times for that. Um, Of course, we have to do that in a loving way and in a gentle way, in a way that seeks to help. Um, But uh, so I use just a very common thing that most of us don't even even regard as a sin, you know, we usually follow what one uh, state policeman once said, you know, nine, you're fine, ten, you're mine, right? Uh, <laughs> because most in our culture, even the police don't regard a few miles over the limit as wrong, right? So, but when you're getting to the point where you're constantly, right, getting tickets, you're really speeding. And you're doing it a lot, Right? And you're, you're, you're going beyond the bounds of what's considered acceptable at this point. So I use that as, as an example, and most people wouldn't think of that as an example to use, but I tried to pick something that we can all be guilty of and that we usually regard as a big deal, but which it's possibly to be overtaken by a lack of concern and a sinful attitude and a lack of responsibility. Boy, we could think of a lot of other things that are really sinful, though, couldn't we? Sins like anger and envy and so forth. Things that Paul listed in the works of the flesh previously. But the point is, it's something that's overtaken somebody. It has become a problem, right? That's what needs to be restored. That's who needs to be restored. Somebody caught in a sin like that. Uh, But Paul also tells us who should do the restoring. He says that you who are spiritual should do the restoring. And and he actually uses the plural here when he addresses you who are spiritual. And and he does it without any further qualification. So I think we can assume that Paul's not referring to a select few here, believers, but to the majority. This is something he, he expects a certain amount of maturity and fruit of the Spirit, and walking in the Spirit of every believer. And therefore, he expects that every believer should be come to a point where he or she can do this, right? Paul's not assuming that this is something, say, only pastors do, which would presuppose that pastors are spiritual, and that's not always true either, sadly. I hope it's true of our pastors. I think it is, but, but uh, it isn't always true, and we all know that, Right? Right? 
We may not assume, then, that Paul has in mind here different classes of Christians, as some might be tempted to assume. You know, some Christians are spiritual and some aren't. Mm, No, some aren't, but they should be. And if they're not spiritual, they need restoring, because they're clearly caught in sin, right? (laughs) So if you see people around you who are Christians who aren't spiritual... Mm, there's somebody needs restoring by those who are. Now, when he refers to those who are spiritual, as I've said, and as we've already begun to, to get in our reading of, of the preceding context, he means those who have attained a basic level of Christian maturity and consistency in their walk, right? Uh, if we recall the preceding context, once again, we can say a number of things about those who are spiritual. We've said a few things. We're going to say some more now. Uh, First, again, this should be in your notes here. The spiritual are those who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. It begins there. There are those who who can say, for example, with the Apostle Paul, as he said in Galatians 2, 20 and 21, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died in vain. You can't be spiritual if you can't say with Paul, I have trusted in Christ alone as my Savior. Because you can't be saved if you haven't trusted in Christ alone by grace alone, through faith alone, to be your Savior. So it starts with you're spiritual if you're saved. Right? Right? Uh, Secondly, the spiritual are those who have received the Spirit by faith. And this is every saved person has received the Spirit by faith. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 3, 2 and 3. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So, here, the spiritual person is the person who recognizes that when I trusted in Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit gave me new life. He gave me that new life so that I might live it in a Christ-like way. And that I should continue living in the Spirit just as I've been saved through the power of the Spirit. Uh, thirdly, the spiritual are those who are walking in the Spirit and battling the flesh, as we've already seen. In Galatians 5, 16 and 17, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Fourthly, the spiritual are those who are demonstrating the fruit of the spirit. As we saw in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, which will crop up in our text. Self-control, against such there is no law. And then fifth, the spiritual are those who humbly realize that they haven't yet arrived at a point where they themselves cannot fall into sin. Show me somebody who thinks that they're no longer capable of sinning, and I'll show you somebody that Paul would say is not a spiritual person because that person is self-deceived, right? The spiritual are those who humbly realize that they haven't yet arrived at a point where they themselves cannot fall into sin. The end of chapter five, Paul said, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited. 
And then considering the end of verse 1 here, in chapter 6, Paul makes it clear that those who are spiritual can still be tempted to sin because he says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So you are spiritual, come and restore, brother, but be careful, you could be tempted too. You're still in the same battle that they're in, right? And that leads us to the next point, the sub-point under mate heading number one. Uh, Paul tells us how restoration should be done. And he says at least two things, I think, about how restoration should be done. First of all, he indicates that restoration must be done caringly. I think this is indicated when Paul says that restoration should be done in a spirit of gentleness. Here Paul is actually recalling an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that we saw in chapter 5, verse 23, gentleness. Reinforcing the notion that the spiritual person is a person who's evidencing something of the Spirit, of the fruit of the Spirit. The Greek word translated gentleness is... Uh, in most modern translations, uh, gentleness, the, New King, or the King James rather, has meekness there, which is also a very good way to translate it. Uh, the analytical uh, lexicon of the Greek New Testament defines this word translated gentleness here as a quality of gentle friendliness, and therefore gentleness. Or, but it, it says it can also mean meekness, and then it defines that, meekness, as strength that accommodates to another's weakness. That's a very good definition for this word. Strength that accommodates to another's weakness. A gentle person is not a weak person. A gentle person is a strong person who can accommodate to another's weakness. It can also just probably be translated by something like consideration. Um, Jesus, who was God incarnate, demonstrated this attribute in his gentle calling to his disciples in Matthew 11, 28, 29. He's our, he's our greatest example of all the fruit of the Spirit, right? He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, people with burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's how we're supposed to be like when we restore a fallen brother or sister, like that. Here we see Jesus as the ultimate example of strength that accommodates to another's weakness because he's God himself who's accommodating himself to our weakness by becoming a human being and a servant, humbling himself, dying on the cross for us. We're to follow his example when we seek to restore fallen brother or sister in Christ. We too are to be gentle and lowly of heart as we confront their sin and encourage them to repent. Now, of course, we can see that at times Jesus was quite strong in his confrontation, say, of the Pharisees. And there's a time for that. But we're talking about here Those who want to trust in the Lord and our brothers and sisters, we're not talking about Pharisees here, hypocrites. We're talking about our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord and the attitude that we should have toward them. Now, when Paul refers here to a spirit, a spirit of gentleness, 
he may simply mean that we should have a gentle attitude or demeanor. Uh, but it's also possible in the context here that he means that we should restore a father and brother by the spirit who produces gentleness. In the power of the spirit, in other words. Referring, of course, to the Holy Spirit. But either way, the context here indicates that gentleness is definitely the attitude or demeanor that we must have, and that gentleness is also definitely something that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So either way you take it, you, you end up at the same point here, right? We must be relying on the Holy Spirit because that's where we get gentleness. You're a spiritual person if you're walking in the Spirit, relying on the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the most important aspects of the fruit of the Spirit to manifest when you're restoring a brother or sister, is gentleness, according to Paul. So restoration must be done caringly, gently. But restoration must also be done cautiously because there's danger involved. And I think this is indicated when Paul says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, the linguistic key of the Greek New Testament says that the verb translated considering here is a verb that indicates being sharply attentive, very diligent, and that the present tense that's used here indicates continually doing so. In other words, we need to be constantly on our guard lest in our attempt to help another who is caught in sin, we too are tempted to sin. But in what way might you or I be tempted to sin as we seek to restore a sinning brother or sister? Paul doesn't say precisely, but it could include several possibilities. For example, we might be tempted to fall into the same sin as the one we're trying to help. That's been known to happen. Secondly, we might be tempted to be harsh or unforgiving, not gentle. Thirdly, we might be tempted to be prideful and feel superior to them. Now, I think that Paul definitely has that last option in mind here because he goes on to say in verse 3, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And he said already in verse 26 of chapter 5, let us not become conceited, right? So before and after these commands here is this idea that we can be prideful. And so I think he at least has that in mind, that that's a sin that we can fall into. That, well, you know, I'm not overtaken in that sin. I must be better than them. Well, that's not spiritual. We've seen that the spiritual person recognizes that they're saved by God's grace alone, <laughs> that they're in a battle with the flesh and they need to be constantly dependent on the Holy Spirit and that they're no better than the other person who's caught in sin, Right? that anything good in them has happened as a result of the Spirit's working, there's no room for pride in any of that. So the moment you're tempted to pride, you're slipping out of being spiritual in your confrontation of these things. Being spiritual isn't a given, right? We, we wake up every day seeking to be spiritual. Well, we sometimes fail in that. And when we... Go as, as one who, who thinks himself to be spiritual, confronts a brother or sister in the Lord. Sometimes we can find out we're not spiritual. 
our pride gets exposed. Whoa, I'm not, I'm not as spiritual as I thought I was then. There's a danger here, Paul says. We need to avoid it. And pride will certainly get in the way of our effectiveness in bearing one another's burdens by restoring one another. But it will also keep us from loving one another as we should. And this leads to the second main point. We must bear one another's burdens by loving one another. Look at the end of verse 2 here. And I'll read this, verse 1 and 2 again here. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, our chief command there, and so fulfill the love of the law, rather, of Christ. And so fulfill the law of Christ. I'm saying that what Paul means by that is we must love one another. If we're, if we're, Bearing one another's burdens in the way that he says, we are fulfilling the law of Christ, and that means we're loving one another. Now, I'm going to try and demonstrate to you why I say that is so. I think this becomes clear if we remember the preceding context, and this is why I began by reading our text from chapter 5, verse 13. Because in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty... Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think when he refers now to the law of Christ, this is what he's talking about. What he's spoken of earlier in the context. How do you ultimately fulfill the law as a Christian? Right? Loving one another. Serving one another in love. And it's important to remember also, in this regard, our, our, our Lord Jesus' teaching. Of course, the Gospels record that he said the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, right? And then to love your neighbors yourself. But he also said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. This is the law of Christ, Right? As I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's what makes it a little different than just the command to love one another. We're supposed to love one another as Christ has loved us. And that adds something to it, doesn't it? By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, we bear one another's burdens by loving one another. Or better still, we love one another by bearing one another's burdens. So in this passage, we have the general moral obligation, I believe, to love one another, leading to the general principle that we must bear one another's burdens, and this in turn involves the specific application with which we spent most of our time this morning, namely the restoring of a fallen brother or sister who's been caught in a sin. So that's the way it's, I think Paul's mind is working here. There's this general principle to love one another, how are you going to do that? Well, one of the ways you do that is bearing one another's burdens. What's a key way you bear one another's burdens? Don't just let that brother or sister who's caught in a sin stew in that sin. Help them. Because this is one of the ways we battle the flesh. Not just in ourselves, but we help our brothers and sisters in that battle. If we're Christ-like. If we love them like Christ loves them, 
We want them to win the battle that we want to win against sin, right? And so in the end, we're restoring the fallen brother or sister because it's the loving thing to do. That's what you do if you love someone. People are very confused about that these days. It's the command to love others that drives our interest in restoring them. So let us never think that we're truly loving others if we neglect to confront a persistent sin in their lives. In fact, we would do well, I think, to remember the original context of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Most people don't think of this context. And you can tell. Here's where this passage, this, this command comes from. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. I'm going to read that for you. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, which, by the way, you're tempted to do if you're rebuking their sin, right? And this is one of the ways you can be tempted to sin when confronting a brother in love, right? And then it, and then it says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The very context of that command to love your neighbor as yourself is probably what led Paul to his application here. In chapter 6, having talked about this law of Christ, loving one another, Paul understands where they came from in the Old Testament. It came from a context of rebuking sin. So guess what Paul talks about? Restoring a fallen brother who's caught in a sin. He's applying what the law actually says in Leviticus in a way many Christians do not. They get this idea that love means just tolerating everything and never confronting anything. You know, so we've, we've seen some well-meaning Christian parents over the years who've done that, right? And they have what we call spoiled children. Well, you know, I just didn't want to be harsh sounding. I didn't want to. And so they just let their kids wallow in their sin. And they grow up to be adults nobody wants to be around. Those parents did not love their children however much they wanted to. Not the way God says we should love. And so we, we need to be this way to each other when we see one another caught in a sin. Again, we don't, we're not going nit, to be nitpicky, looking for every possible thing, fault in one another. No, we're too gracious for that. Uh, we're not going to do that. But if we see a brother and sister really caught in a sin, we, we're, we're going to help them because we love them. We're going to come aside them, alongside them and say, oh man, there but by the grace of God go I. I know I could easily be in the same situation, struggling with the same sin. In fact, I do. And if I'm not totally caught in it the way they are, oh, it's just by the grace of God. How can I help them? Well, I think about how God has helped me and I'll come alongside and say, here's how God helped me. I want to help you. the way God helped me. I, I, want, I want the Spirit to work through me, helping you as he's been helping me. That's a spiritual person. If we keep in mind what Paul's been saying here. But if loving uh, others is the most important command ultimately here, 
And restoring one another's is just really one application of that, as we've seen. How we can lovingly bear one another's burdens. We may assume that loving others will certainly involve bearing one another's burdens in other ways as well. There's a general principle I I think that can be applied here beyond just helping brothers and sisters who are caught in a sin, which is the most important way we can bear burdens. But there are other ways we can do it as well. Uh, For example, uh, I think we can apply this principle by saying that we should bear one another's economic burdens. We saw this happen when the Christians in Jerusalem, right? In Acts, we saw that they were being persecuted. They were all being cast out of the synagogues. They were all left in poverty. What did they do? They sold everything that they had and put together to help each other. They bore one another's economic burdens. I think a good example of this would be what Paul challenged the Corinthian church to do concerning giving, actually to help those same Jerusalem Christians who are in poverty because they weren't able, even with what they did, to meet their own needs. They were still in poverty because those those funds were running out. What were they going to do then? Well, Paul was going around collecting from churches to help them and help bear those economic burdens. He said this in 2 Corinthians 8, 8 through 15 to the Corinthian church, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Now, in the context, he's used the Macedonian church as the example of sacrificial giving, and he's saying, you Corinthians could be like that, you know. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this, I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began, because they'd started a collection, and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much has had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. What's Paul saying here? Listen, there's... There's times when you're going to need and they can help you. Right now they need and you can help them. This is a way you can share burdens. Monetarily, economically. We could also share one another's emotional burdens. There's probably no one in this room that doesn't have some kind of an emotional burden. Right? I think we can find a couple of examples of Paul's teaching about this elsewhere in Scripture. Here's one from 2 Corinthians again, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, our afflictions. Last week we talked about one of the ways he comforts us, right? He helps us to think about those things in the larger context of his loving plan for us so that we can have joy in the midst of them. That's one of the ways he comforts us. 
He comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. If you've received comfort from God in your affliction, it's not just so that you can be comforted yourself. It's so that then you can help comfort other people with the same comfort you've gotten from him. That's what Paul's saying here. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. We can share emotional burdens. We can come alongside people and say, I see you're burdened. I'm often burdened too. Here's how God comforts me in my struggle. And maybe it will comfort you too. In fact, that was the whole point of last week's sermon. I was trying to do for you what God had done for me. I was trying to share the comfort with you with which he had comforted me so frequently. As Paul put it very simply to the Romans in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So I'd like to conclude simply by observing that Paul's teaching here assumes that as we mature as Christians, as we learn to be more spiritual, which is to say spirit-led, we will bear one another's burdens. That's part of what a spiritual person does. So if, if you think you're spiritual, but you don't ever want to share other people's burdens, you might have to think again about that. Because a spiritual person is going to love people the way Jesus loves them. And he said, come unto me, all you are heavy laden. We should want to be the kind of people that heavy laden people come to for help. Doesn't this also means if we're going to bear one another's burdens that we share them? It's hard for you to bear my burdens if I don't share them with you. As some of these burdens we have, people can't see. Often they can see them. They certainly are good at seeing if I'm caught in a sin. Most people are good at seeing that, right? Uh, are, they, are they good at seeing when I'm down? Not if I hide it well. And some of us are good at that. Are they good at knowing when I'm in pain? Well, sometimes I mask that pretty well too. They're, they're just things people can't know if I don't tell them. And then I can't feel bad toward them that they didn't share my burden if I didn't share it with them. I can't blame them for not being a mind reader. And so we have an obligation if we're going to be a body which bears one another's burdens to be a a body which shares our burdens. Now, having said all of that, I think we do that pretty well at Emmanuel. And I'm (laughs) I'm uh, I'm not condemning, I'm not aiming this sermon at the congregation saying, boy, you people, you just don't know how to bear one another's burdens. I think, frankly think, that this is a sharing and bearing congregation. 
I'm, in fact, really excited about this congregation in that regard. And I'll just tell you my own experience, and I know some of you have had some experience like that. I've had a hard year. Many of you have had a really hard year. I, you know, I've had cancer, still do. <laughs> Thankfully, my most recent blood test this past week says it's still undetectable. I'm coming up on almost a year from that, right? I almost died twice of sepsis, and I'm living with long-term effects of that, which slowly are improving, but frustratingly slowly, I might add, at times. I get frustrated when I can't think the way I want to think. It's very frustrating to have been able to think very clearly and then not be able to do that so well. That's getting better by God's grace. I've got arthritis issues. <laughs> you know, I've got things that in my life that make it hard. I've, I've had a headache every day since the end of October. And I've been nauseous every day for the past month and a half. That's the way I've been living. I didn't hide any of this from you folks. I wanted you to pray for me. Uh, I need it. Let me tell you, when I realized just how loving you've been to me, I've been feeling it all along. I was in a sepsis awareness group that I I meet with every couple of weeks online. We help each other dealing with the post-sepsis syndrome that that you really kind of have to experience to understand, right? And so you get in with this group of people that are going through the same thing. And some of these folks are really struggling with depression. And they asked me how I was doing. I said, well, actually, I haven't been depressed at all. And I'm prone to that. They said, why not? And I said, well, I guess the answer to that is love. I... As a Christian, I understand why all this is happening, and hence last week's sermon, right? I understand why all this is happening, and it's been a tough year but it, for me, but a joyful one because I've experienced God's love through it so much. But not only that, it's like everywhere I turn, I get encouragement. I get love. I have a family that loves me and encourages me constantly. I have a church that loves me and encourages me constantly. I'm going back years redoing old sermons because I can't seem to focus well enough to do new ones because of this trouble I'm having with my head. Uh, and the, they all understood that. Boy, I know what you mean there. I can't. <laughs> uh, and and I, said, I guess the answer is love. Everywhere I turn in my life, I find love. I just can't be depressed. <laughs> it's because of God working in my heart through the Spirit, but it's also through God working through all of you. You have helped me bear my burden through your love. You guys are doing really well with this. If my experience is any indication anyway. <laughs> but we can always do better. Spiritual people know they haven't arrived. So we can do better, can't we? We can always do better because there's still some of us here falling through the cracks or who may be fearful about saying what they're going through. And they've come by that fear honestly because in the past when they've shared things, they've been jumped on and hurt and they've learned not to trust and it's hard for them to trust and open up. The more we become a body that makes it easy to share, the more those people will feel like they can share too. Because they know what they're going to get. 
love and lots of it instead of condemnation and anger and arrogance they're going to get humility and love why do I feel like I can share my burdens here so easily because that's the way you all are you're spiritual people and I have no fear sharing with you I feel safe here I hope all of you do too I really do because you can you really can feel safe here this is a spiritual church let's pray Holy Father I'm sure some of us needed some confrontation on this I know I did one of my failures is I get so caught up in my own pain and struggling I don't see as clearly around me those who are suffering. There's a kind of selfishness that comes with pain. It it causes us to focus on the pain and and inward too much. And it's not that we're trying to be selfish, it's that we hurt. And it it attracts all of our attention. and, And then we have little attention for others. Lord, help us to break out of that through the power of your spirit to no matter how we're struggling, help us to learn to, to see others clearly and what they need and to help them. And forgive me for the ways in which I failed to do that. Lord, I want to, and forgive anyone else here who's failed in that too, I pray. But most of all, Lord, I want this congregation to be encouraged The Spirit is at work here in powerful ways that only the spiritual can see and understand. But we see it. We know it. We know your Spirit is at work here. And we're thankful for it, Lord. We don't deserve it even for a second. But we're so grateful for your grace to us that through many hardships, These people are trusting you. Oh, some of us are crying out, Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief, right? But we're still crying out to you because as the apostle Peter said, where else can we go? You have the words of life and we're dependent on you. Lord, encourage us, I pray today. Help us to be even stronger. Help us to depend on you even more. Help us as we go through all of our individual battles to look outward to the others around us with love and share and bear one another's burdens even more effectively. I pray these things for our good and for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.